Well, the new year is coming, which means you're all supposed to have resolutions. Every time around this time of year, people talk about the resolutions. And what's your resolution? Here's my resolution, or here's my resolutions that I'm going to make. How many of you have made resolutions for next year? Okay, I see some hands. Okay, others of you, no way. No way. I can't fail something that I don't make a goal for. True. Um, but uh, I, I, I've made resolutions uh, for myself in the past, and even in this upcoming year, um, I go through goals uh, that I have in my own life. Um, and I've had in the past resolutions that I have made that I have followed through on, other resolutions that have fallen flat on the ground, other resolutions that I've had to say, you know what, this needs to be tweaked. There, there are, I think, probably, generally, two types of personalities when it comes to resolutions. There's one person who says, yes, I love this, um, and, and you like to make those goals, and you're the type of person, too, that if, you, if, if a goal falls flat, you say, that's okay, um, I, I can't. I can't aim for something that I haven't put up. So, I mean, if, if something falls to the ground, that's okay. I just keep moving forward. Then there's others of you, which I think probably is the bigger portion of people, that if you have one goal that falls flat, then you say, I'm a failure. I can't, you know what? If I can't keep these goals, then I'm just not going to make any goals whatsoever because all the time I'm always failing at these goals. I'm assuming based on my conversations with people, that that is the bigger grouping of people. When you hear New Year's resolution, you're not necessarily excited about it. You just say, no way, Jose, that's not for me. Some of you might even shudder when you hear the word or phrase New Year's resolution. Again, because there's so much failure in it. A while back, I looked up the 10 commonly broken, or the top 10 commonly broken New Year's resolutions. This was uh, from Time Magazine in 2011. And these are the top 10 broken resolutions. Lose weight and get fit. Quit smoking. Learn something new. Eat healthier and diet. Get out of debt and save money. Spend more time with family. Travel to new places. (laughs) Be less stressed. (laughs) Sounds nice. (laughs) Volunteer and drink less. The top 10 broken resolutions. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone fails at resolutions, but what I think we find by talking about the top 10 broken resolutions here is that every human being has within themselves this desire to maybe be better or do better in their actions. They, they desire to have that in their lives, but in the midst of that, they have greater desires that take precedence over the will to accomplish these goals. They recognize their own weaknesses, and then because of the failure, a lot of human beings are in this, I think that they would even say it this way, a lot of human beings are in this cycle of pursuing mediocrity, never attaining greater goals, never seeking to change things in their own lives truly. So where do you fall in the resolution category? I want to be careful to say that the Bible doesn't say that Christians have to write out a list of resolutions. And yet at the same time, I believe that the scriptures, that God himself calls Christians to have goals in their lives. And to have even difficult and hard goals in their lives. If you read the Apostle Paul and you actually read his letters realizing he was a real human being and he had mission to accomplish, you actually see how he had goals for Titus and how Titus was going to go here and do this at this point in time while he's going to do this and he's going to take care of these people and he's going to disciple over here. There's goals that a Christian ought to have in their lives. And I know that some of you in this room might be 
thinking, yeah, but I feel like, you know, Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. And the things that I do, that's what I don't want to do. So I'm just going to live in that. But you might remember if you were here when I preached through that passage, I also stated that that Romans 7 description is not the whole of the Apostle Paul's life. That's not the definition of his life. Paul also says of himself in Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, so I'm not perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He presses on. Paul says elsewhere, he's not like a man just beating the air in this race. He's moving forward. He's focused in what he's doing because there's a goal and a mission in the life of a Christian. So now before I go further and read from the text today, and you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Before I read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'm hoping that you might have a piece of paper with you. And I'm going to give you a minute or so to jot down some goals that you think would be good for your life for next year. Now, maybe some of you said, oh, I got this because I've already worked on the goals. Others of you are like, I don't know. Well, just, I'm giving you a minute, so I'm not giving you an extensive list, or you're not going to be able to write down an extensive list. But I want you to think through, what do you think would be good goals for your life right now as you enter into 2019? Does that make sense? So, New Year's resolution, take a minute, go. All right, now you're going to say I didn't give you enough time. That's okay. It is still going to help us as we move forward in the sermon. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to read from 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12. So let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you give us hope and that you give us strength to be able to do what you have called us to do and to care about what you have called us to be and do. So I ask, Lord, this morning for your wisdom and your discernment as we seek to apply the scriptures to our lives. And truly, we need your Holy Spirit to make the application, to convict us of sin and of righteousness. And Lord, for those who do not believe, I pray that you would also convince them of the truth of your word and their need to trust Jesus. Let us see and experience and rejoice in your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to the Christian church in the city of Thessalonica. And, and the context is that the Christians at one point in time were confused because they thought and they were, they were listening to certain teaching that was saying that Jesus has come back and left. And they're left. 
And so they weren't sure um, how they could have any more hope. If we were to put it in modern day vernacular, the Christians had been left behind and they wished they'd all been ready. Okay? So how do they have hope? How do they have hope if Jesus has already come and left? Now Paul writes to them with this encouragement because in the midst of this they're also experiencing persecution. And Paul writes to them and says that God has not left his children. And God will never leave his children. And so in the beginning verses of 2 Thessalonians, Paul re-explains to the Thessalonians a correct view of the return of Jesus. I'm just going to give a basic overview of this. In those verses, Paul says that there is going to be a just punishment for those who do not believe in and follow after the Lord Jesus. A just punishment. Because those who do not trust in Christ are sinners. They are traitors against God who owns all. They will not worship and serve him in his rule. So there's a punishment. But Paul doesn't stop there. He also says there's going to be great joy for those who experience salvation. Look at verse 10. He says, when he comes, when Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We see a couple, we see several great truths, but I want to just focus on two here first. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, Jesus hasn't come yet. He will be glorified in his saints at some point in the future, but that means Jesus hasn't come yet. Secondly, Jesus will come for those who believe. That is a key phrase that we need to make sure that we understand. There are two types of people in this world. There are those who believe and there's our, there are those who do not believe. And we have to define what we mean even by the word believe. People can say believe is simply assenting to facts. Well, I know this to be true and I know this to be true and I know this to be true. But just assenting to facts doesn't mean that you have a faith belief, a, a, a true, sturdy belief in God. I mean, I can, I can believe that there's a certain ruler in another country, but that doesn't mean that I am committed to that ruler in that country. I'm just believing facts. I can believe that Paris, France exists, but I'm not given to Paris, France. From a scriptural perspective, we see words like faith or belief or believe on and believe in. And those words mean not only assenting to the facts, but also a giving yourself over to that. So to believe on Jesus is to get outside of yourself, not believing on yourself or believing in yourself ultimately, but it's a getting outside of yourself and saying, Jesus, you're, you're my life. You're my everything. I am trusting you as the Savior, not me. I turn from my sin. I turn from the other things that I'm looking to for identity and hope and life. And I'm saying, your life. Isn't that what the scriptures say? Jesus is life. He is the way. He is the truth. And for those who believe on Christ, experience the salvation that God gives. They're reconciled to God. Those who believe on Christ, they're reconciled to God because Jesus has done all for us. The songs that we have sung earlier, that Jesus has lived the life we could have never lived. Jesus died the death we deserve to die. And in our place, he was condemned so that we could be made righteous and set free. And so Paul says, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. The Thessalonians believed on Jesus. And so Paul says, because you believe, that is a sign that God will never let you go. God will never forsake his own. But this fits within this context of how Paul is seeking to encourage them how to live in this life. The, the reality in their minds, when they thought that Jesus had already come, then they didn't know how to live. People are selling stuff and selling, selling things in their own homes. Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to live. 
And that makes sense. If you don't have a right vision of your future in Christ, you won't know how to live today. And so what Paul shows us in this text is that our future reunion with Jesus affects how we live today. And so he tells them some about this future reunion, what this reunion is going to look like. And I use this word reunion to kind of help us in our own minds. Just think about reunions for a moment. Many of you for Christmas got together with family or friends on Christmas Day. What did you do in anticipation for Christmas? How did you prepare for it? Were you looking forward to it? Hopefully you were. (laughs) Maybe think of an engaged couple who's looking at their wedding to come and there's going to be a lot of family and friends who are going to come to this wedding. What kind of anticipation is there for the wedding day? What kind of planning takes place for that wedding day? Prep work for the people who are coming in. Think about a parent imagining that a child they haven't seen for a long time, months being apart, and that child's coming home on this certain day. How does that parent plan for that, anticipate for that? There's anticipation when we have reunions, generally speaking. There's anticipation when we're going to get together with people that we haven't seen for a while or when there's going to be a celebration that's going to come. Now, let me ask you a question. Is our reunion with Jesus greater than any other earthly reunion? Yes? Our uniting with Jesus is greater than any of those things. It will far exceed what our imaginations can imagine. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, he hasn't come, but when he does, this is what it's going to be like. And the reality of what that's going to be like should then shape how you live today. So what's it going to be like, Paul? He tells us in verse 10. He says, first, Jesus will be glorified in his saints. Now, let me make sure you understand what this word saints means, because there's many people who believe that the word saint refers to the super spiritual elite people. Those who, I mean, they don't just love Jesus, but they, they are higher and above. But the scriptures say a saint is simply one who is set apart for God. And that is anyone who trusts in Christ has been made holy, has been set apart. If you have trusted in Jesus, you're a saint. God is at work in you. Jesus is going to be glorified in his saints. Now we know in the scriptures, the Bible says the purpose for humanity's existence is to glorify God. To live for his glory. And so we have 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now we know that in this life, we don't do this perfectly. I've already commented on that, but we also have Galatians 5. It says the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. So you don't do what you want to do. But you know, there is going to be a day where there is no more waging war against the flesh. Isn't that going to be a tremendous day? I mean, you can think of many words to describe that. Relief, joy, delight. In 1 Corinthians 15, 52, Paul writes, In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. We will be changed in a moment. I, I can only imagine, and my imagination doesn't come close to how great that's going to be, but 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. What, what John is saying is, is, We will be like Jesus when Jesus appears. When we see him, we will be made perfect. That's what it means to be glorified, for Jesus to be glorified in the saints. This is Jesus' work of perfecting those whom he has rescued. And when we get to that day and we see Jesus face to face, and when we are made completely perfect and whole, Christ will be glorified in the saints and in the perfection of all of those saints coming together. Jesus hasn't lost one. Not only hasn't he lost them, 
but he has made them whole. What a glorious day, right? What an amazing circumstance. Jesus is going to be glorified in the saints. Now, Paul says not only will Jesus be glorified in the saints, but Jesus will be admired or marveled at among the believers. There are going to be people who experience just punishment. And those people will not marvel at Christ when he comes. But there are going to be people who marvel at that day when Jesus comes. In my mind, when I think about marveling at Jesus, I'm actually taken back to the circumstance where the disciples see Jesus ascending up into heaven. And I I have this picture in my mind when Jesus is ascending up into the clouds that the disciples are, where'd he go? You know, and then the angels come and they say, what what are you doing here? You need to move on. But Jesus will come back again as the way you saw him go up in the clouds. He's going to return in the clouds again someday. But there's this, this astonishment. There's this awe. And someday Jesus is going to come back again in the clouds. And there's going to be greater, I think, astonishment and awe when Jesus returns. I mean, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, a twinkling of an eye, I don't even have enough time to have a great emotional response with it. It's just, what just happened? There is Jesus. And we, when that happens, if you're a believer in Christ, you will marvel at Jesus. Think about that phrase. You'll marvel at him. And if you're going to marvel at him, then I think what Paul is saying to us is, then marvel at him today. Behold him today and admire him. I think too often people treat God only as a master that they must serve. And God is a master that we must serve. But God is a glorious master that we can rejoice in serving. That he is the savior that we are to savor. So Paul is saying, anticipate, rejoice. This day is going to come. And you'll be without any hint of sin marveling at Jesus. Now in light of that future hope, because this is going to happen, live in the anticipation Now, there are some so-called Christians that would take this phrase and, and, and even take what Paul is teaching here and they'll say, well, it's going to happen. Jesus is going to come again. And so I can just sit back and wait until he comes again. But that would be like somebody saying, hey, Christmas is going to happen. People are going to come anyway, so I might as well not, you know, prepare a meal. Might as well not buy any presents. Might as well not do anything. I mean, Christmas is going to happen anyway. You say, no, Christmas is happening. And so because Christmas is happening, you have to prep for it. You need, to, you need to anticipate this, that this is happening. Well, Jesus is coming again. And because Jesus is coming again, prep for it. Anticipate it. Look forward to it. It's going to be glorious and you're going to marvel at him. So this is the backdrop of the verses for, uh, for verses 11 and 12. And now I also, you have that list that I asked you to make. And I want you to think about that list and I want you to think about verses 11 and 12. And let's read 11 and 12 again real quick. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read these two verses, how do they line up with your resolutions? I want you to actually think through as we go through this sermon. How do the resolutions, the the resolves in my life, because Paul uses the word resolve. How do these resolves that I have made actually help with the good that God has actually intended for my life. And how do I know? 
that my resolves are good. I think Paul gives us ideas in this text. We should seek to make resolutions that would encourage us to live a life of dependence on the Lord. I bring that up for two reasons in particular. One, Paul says, every work of faith. The word faith can also be translated dependence or reliance. I actually like the title of that, that uh, book that one of the ladies' Bible studies is going through, Desperate, because even as Kara said at the beginning of the service, um, we're all desperate for the Lord. Without him, we can do what? No, we can do what? Nothing. We can, that's a pretty desperate situation, isn't it? I can do nothing without the Lord. Nothing of eternal significance without the Lord's work in my life. So the only work that matters is work done in dependence on him. Because the scriptures say, apart from faith, apart from dependence, it is impossible to please him. He delights when we're dependent He delights when we're desperately dependent upon him to do what only he can do. Paul is not simply saying, okay, Thessalonians, Jesus is coming again. Try harder. Instead, he says, depend on the Lord. He is your only hope. And actually, Paul is an example of this dependence because when he speaks here, he says, Jesus is coming again. It's going to be glorious. So, verse 11 To this end, we pray. Again, he doesn't just say, so because Jesus is coming again, try, work hard in your own strength because Jesus is coming again. I'm praying for you. Why? Because only God can do what only God can do. And we need to be a dependent, praying people. So ask yourself, in that little resolution list that you created, does that encourage and exhort you to dependence on the Lord or self-reliance? Look what I'm going to do for God this year. (gasps) Or does it encourage you to depend on God? I'd even ask you, does this list that you've created include within it prayerfulness? A growing in your relationship with God in prayer. Do you even desire to pray? And I bring up prayer specifically because that's the example that Paul gives from himself. The first thing I'm going to do is pray. And I think the scriptures even tell us that the first fruit of faith is prayer. Romans 10, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved because there's faith. And if there's faith, they call on God. Do you have prayer as a part of your life and as a part of your goal? And Paul says, we always pray for you. And some of you could look at that and say, always, really? What does always mean? Oh man, that sounds so hard, always. And you, you, you struggle with that, that word. However, I want you to look at the positivity of this phrase. That we we always pray. Why would he always pray? I think that this means that there's a consistency about him. That there's a purposefulness. That it's not just one time during the day. It's throughout the day. Paul's a praying person. Paul is seeking the Lord in dependence. Knowing that only God, again, only God can do what he can do. But he does this because he knows he's going to see God face to face someday. And some of us, when we think about prayer, we, again, we think, oh man. That almost sounds oppressive to pray all the time. Let me get back to that reunion illustration. Some of you are sports fans and some of you like football. And so just imagine with me that you won a day with your favorite football player. How would you act and behave in anticipation for that day? One, you're probably going to tell everybody you know, guess what? And then you're going to plan, you know, these types of things. And I got to get this jersey. I got to wear this. We got to do this. We're going to have this thing going on. And then you get to that day. And how are you going to act on that day? Like a fool. And, and you're going, you're going to enjoy that day. And you're going to walk away from that. Yeah! Woo! 
And all of the stuff in anticipation is not going to feel like a sacrifice because of that day. That one day, you're not going to think, people are going to say, why, why are you doing this? And because this day. And people go, okay, all right, that kind of makes sense, all right. You're not even thinking sacrifice. Now, some of you say, I don't like sports, so that illustration falls flat on his face. Okay, fine. Then you think of, let's imagine you win a vacation with any person that, that you want to go with to wherever you want to go. How are you going to live in anticipation for that vacation? How are you going to communicate with the person or people that are going with you on that vacation in prep with that? You're, you're probably going to talk with them. You're probably going to talk about details of what's going to happen on that trip. You're going to have consistent communication and planning, and then you get to that trip and there's rejoicing. Okay, so what about Jesus? And what about our communication with him in anticipation of the day when we actually see him face to face? And the glory that we're going to have for all eternity is praying without ceasing really a foolish thing? And should it really be viewed as a sacrifice? No, it's saying, Jesus, I'm going to see you. And, and, and God, I need you to help me today. I need you to give me grace today to, to live for you because I'm going to see you someday because I'm going to be with you. So we pray without ceasing and I pray for you and you pray for me and we pray for one another and we pray for this world because why? Jesus is coming. He's really coming again. Pray. Do your goals have prayer within it? And by the way, I'm not just trying to guilt trip people here because some of you could say, I know I'm supposed, I should be praying and I should be praying more, but you know, I've got all these kids and they're going crazy. And I don't even have time to take a shower. I haven't taken one for a week. And, you know, and then I try to discipline myself. And guess what? They get up earlier. They just know when I'm trying to be spiritual, you know? And so I, I don't know what to do. I remember years ago, one person who was talking about just trying to grow in remembering what they read in the morning from the Bible. And one thing that they said was they put a little sticker on their watch so that every time they looked at their watch, it would be a challenge to them to say, what did I read this morning? You know, maybe something with regards to prayer. You do something that's with you. Maybe you wear a bracelet. Maybe you have a watch. Maybe something that just whenever you see that thing, pray right now. God, I need you. God, you're good. Use something to grow in the habit of prayer and dependence on the Lord, recognizing your neediness for him and that he answers our prayers. Grow in that because he's coming again and you need him. So live a life of dependence on the Lord. Secondly, live up to your calling. What is this Calling. In verse 12, he says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The calling of God is a summoning of people to Jesus and to the glory of Jesus, to live in light of that glory that has been given to us in Christ. Those of us who believe on Jesus have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his son. And there's going to be a physical, visible manifestation of that someday where we will enter into that kingdom when Jesus returns. But now we are sons and daughters. We're heirs of the kingdom. And so Paul actually says, so today live like it because it's real. You really are heirs of this future kingdom. So live this way. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. I'm just going to stop there. Paul is saying, this calling wasn't given to you because you did something spectacular and God then gifted you because you're so amazing. No, actually the world looked on you and said, why in the world would these people be the special people? They were confounded by this. God gifts to people this calling. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He says, because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you or what you've done. Because of God, 
who became to us, Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So the beauty of this calling is it's something that we couldn't earn. It's something that's given to us by God. And then when God gives us Jesus, then in Jesus, we have wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That we have the promise of God to know him, to live in light of his wisdom, to grow in holiness, and to know we're secure for all eternity. Is that a great calling? Wait. Is that a great calling? Yes. It's a glorious calling that God has given to us that we're no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. And it should come as an encouragement to us because you might be the type of person that says how do I live up to my calling you you see that phrase live up to your calling and you get depressed oh oh, I can't yes in your own strength you cannot do this but you don't live in your own strength you live in the strength that God supplies by the Holy Spirit Peter, in 2 Peter 1, 3, says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given to you what you need. All that you need for life and for godliness. And so therefore, Peter goes on in 2 Peter 1 and says, Add to your faith virtue, and virtue knowledge, and knowledge, self-control, and self-control, steadfastness, and steadfastness, godliness, and godliness, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection, love. Paul actually goes on in that chapter and he says, if you're adding those things in your life, then guess what happens? That you start to look at your life and you say, the only way I could be doing this is if God was at work in my life. I see that I am a believer in Christ. There's affirmation that God has saved me. But not only that, Peter goes on and says, then people around you look at your life and they actually say, God, the only answer is that God is at work in your life. Like we are to live in such a way that the world would look at us and that our friends would look at us and there would be no doubt that Jesus is the one shaping us. So look at your goals. Look at, look at the resolutions for next year. Do they help and serve in such a way so that others might look at your life and say, only God could do that. God is the one changing that person. God is the one at work in their lives. Our resolutions shouldn't be just try harder at being good. Because Paul actually says in this text that God would make us worthy. It's not about me making myself worthy. This is God's work, right? Ultimately, my growth in godliness is dependent on him. And so therefore, again, my goals and my desires in my life is to live in the reality of that dependence. I like the word that John uses on different occasions, the word to abide. To abide in Christ. First John 2, 6 says, the one who abides, or the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Abiding comes first, then the living it out. If you're skipping over the abiding, then you have an appearance of godliness and you're denying the power. So do your goals help bring you back to the abiding? I need you, God. I love you, Jesus. I want to marvel at you. So pray to the Father for grace to marvel at Christ. Look at the list. See what you've written down. Do you see insufficiencies? Do you have areas that will help you fulfill fulfill the call? But now what? You say, I could, I could write down a list of things to do, but I still am afraid I'm going to fail at it. I don't want to be the time special statistic. I think Paul gives a little bit more hope to us to spur us on. And I think he shows us to live in anticipation for God to work. Does God fulfill his promises? Every promise? Does he, does he ever give up on one? 
No. God always fulfills his promises. And so Paul is living in anticipation for God to actually do what he says he's going to do. Our hope, my hope, in doing certain things next year is not found in me. My hope ultimately rests in God. Paul says here that God may fulfill every resolve for good. That God would fulfill every resolve for good. The word resolve is why I titled the sermon the way I did. We have many resolutions. We have a lot of good intentions. Maybe we have good goals for 2019. We know our tendency, though, and we know our tendency can be to fail. But the good news is that we find in our calling a God that doesn't simply give us a future hope that he's coming again someday, but a God who says he will fulfill his work in our lives today. What is truly good and right for us today, that's what he's going to do today. So anticipate that. Do you believe that God will fulfill his promises in your life today? Next year? Ten years from now? A thousand years from now? Will God fulfill his promises? Yes. and, And so therefore, trust that. And rejoice in that. He's going to fulfill every resolve for good This reminds me of the psalmist who says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Some people interpret that verse to mean, if you delight in God, then God's going to give you what you want. Which really means you don't want God, ultimately. You just want other stuff and you strong arm God. That's that's not what the verse is saying. The verse says, delight in God yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will actually shape your desires to be in line with his desires. So again, the abiding comes first. When you're abiding in Christ and when you're seeking him and growing in love and adoration and joy in him, then he shapes your resolves. He changes things. That's why I can go throughout a year and I'm sure even a month from now, I'm going to look at some of my resolutions and go, why am I even doing that? Why did I even write that down in the first place? I'm not doing this priority and I'm not acting out on this thing that God wants me to do. And I'm trying to work on this thing here. No, that needs to just go out. I need, I need to delight in the Lord. And as I'm delighting in him, he changes and shapes my desires to be in line with his desires. As I'm delighting in him, he's working in my heart to change and shape. So let's take a moment to get this practical. What does this look like with a list that you might have or with goals that you might have for next year? I mean, even in my own uh, life and in my own experience, this is somewhat of a humorous story. Um, But years ago, I, I wanted to continue on with higher education And I would talk about going to seminary for higher education, and then Tracy would get pregnant. And it's like, well, you know, it's probably not the time. I know my my, uh, reading ability. I'm very slow, and there's a lot of reading in seminary, and I just knew there's no way I could be a good father and do this seminary. So I'll just trust God. And then, you know, time would go on, kind of get our handles on having a child. And then I'm like, man, I really want to go to seminary. And then Tracy would get pregnant again. (laughs) Okay. Um, It it actually happened, I don't know, it might have happened two or three times, but it happened enough that I had people joke with me before um, trying to ask if Tracy was pregnant, but they would just say, so you're thinking seminary? (laughs) You know? Um, I believe that that was God hedging in my circumstances. I could have a goal to say, hey, I'm going to go to seminary. But then God took my circumstances and said, no, these are your priorities. You are a husband. You are a father. And these are greater priorities than you going over there and doing that, no matter how great that might be for you. But you need to trust me. That's how we have to look at even our goals in our lives. Or you could think, okay, I have a goal for um, diet and an exercise. Okay, fine, that's, that's a good goal. Now, some of you say, well, the Bible just says bodily exercise profits little, so that's why I don't do it. You, know? <laughs> but you have to get the context of that verse. Um, in the Roman culture, 
exercise. It, it, you could see the strength people would garner from the exercise. And Paul's saying in comparison to the eternal rewards uh, uh, of following after the Lord, exercise is like nothing. Okay, which should then compel them all the more to seek the spiritual realities. It's not Paul saying don't exercise. It's Paul saying the spiritual is far greater. Okay, so you look at exercise and you look at a goal of exercise and diet, but you just have to ask yourself, okay, so how does this fall within the priorities of my own life that God has given to me? If you're married, if you have children, if you have uh, work, your schedule, how does this fall? You have to ask yourself, and you also have to ask yourself, why do I want this? Well, I just want to look nicer. Okay, how does that fall within the priorities of God? Because we we do need to ask the why behind what we're doing too, don't we? Right? Because James, the apostle himself, he says, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your own passions. Do you have a godly reason for this? Or is it really more of a self-motivated, self-centered reason for doing this? Some of you could have goals with work. I want to climb the ladder and I want to get up to this level. I have heard people before where they'll make the argument and saying, I have to make this level of sacrifice and I know I'm going to have to put aside certain priorities God has given to me, but I'm only going to do it for like five years. And after those five years, I'm going to come back to these priorities. I have not yet met one person who has actually followed through on that. Instead, they got caught in the cycle of workaholism. They gave up the priorities God told them to do. It's not worth it. You have to ask yourself, do these goals follow the good work that God is calling me to? Am I submitting to the Lordship of Christ? And do I trust that God's actually going to, through delighting in him, he's going to shape my desires and will in this? Shape your will in this. When I think about wanting to go to seminary, I could have been like, oh man, why do I keep having kids? And some of you would say, I know why. Um, and, but my point is saying, I could be upset with God with that. But why? God, I'm living for God. I'm anticipating him returning again. He knows all and I can trust him. And rejoice in this, no matter how he hedges me in. So, our prayer should be, God, give me the grace to fulfill the resolves for good. Give me grace to see what truly aligns with you or not. And I trust you'll actually show me those things because you say you will. The next thing is, again, depend on God's power. Live a life of dependence or depend on his power. Paul is continually reiterating the importance of God's grace at work. He prays for us. He asks that God would make us live worthy of our calling. Then he prays that God fulfills our desires to live out that calling. Now he prays that God would empower our own faith. It's interesting in this passage. It's like Paul is working backwards in this list. He moves from Jesus' return to our obedient lives, to our desire to live obediently, and then the faith that empowers the obedience. God's grace grants you the strengthening of your own faith. Do you know that? We sang the song, he will hold me fast. I, I, I can't even keep my hold. What it, what's that? Keeping my hold is faith. I can't even maintain my faith in my own strength. And so Paul says, be dependent on the Lord. Realize that God grants and strengthens. He does this through the work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 3.16 says, According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. The promised comforter and counselor continues to strengthen believers to continue to believe. And it's the powerful working of the Spirit, the Spirit to keep us believing. As a result of the Spirit, our faith grows, works to give us desires to do good, and strengthens our obedience to live according to the calling. So look at your resolutions again. Do the resolutions reveal deep dependence on God or do they look human-centered, easily achieved in our own strength? There's a great power that God has given to work within his children. Why don't you pray that God would empower you in greater ways to trust him and love him and obey him? As you look at the list, you could look at some things and say, this needs to be deleted. Other things, this needs to be modified. And still others, this needs to be added. 
And then remember the broader context of what Paul says here. These requests were prayed by Paul so that the Thessalonians would have Jesus' name glorified in their midst. Paul didn't simply say, I want Jesus to be glorified in your individual life, which would be true. But he is saying, I want Jesus to be glorified in your local church. I want you to live in such a way that when the believers are gathered together, people see Jesus' glory shining out from you all. Why? Because someday, Jesus will be glorified among all the saints throughout all time. Right? And if Jesus is going to be glorified among all saints throughout all time, then Paul says, let's show that in small pictures in local churches. Show that to the world. Jesus is glorified in this place. And that's consistently been something that I've said to different people about Ventura. My hope, my prayer is that always in this place, when people look at what has happened here at Ventura and what continues to happen, that when they say, how, how, we would always say first, Jesus. Jesus is how. Jesus is who. That's why we have what we have. And that is our continual prayer that Jesus would be the one to strengthen and empower and enable. So again, when you think through resolves, when you think through Jesus coming again, when you think through Jesus coming again, how does that affect the resolves? How does that affect the resolves for you individually? But how do those resolves also affect the community of believers with which we worship and are committed And Paul reiterates his point. All of this, the glory of Jesus and even our own exaltation in him is due to the grace of God. Trust his grace. So realize that God can and will enable you to fulfill those resolutions which will honor him and be for your greatest good in him. God does not base your growth ultimately on you and how great you've done in the past to impress him, but instead it's because of his pure grace that you will fulfill his calling in your life. And knowing that, then live it out. Trust. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And if you don't know Christ, if you haven't trusted in him, I would encourage you, you can feel free to talk to me after the service, and I would love to share with you more about Jesus and what it means to trust and follow and turn from sin. But let's praise him. He is good and he is great. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Hallowed be your name. And even as we sing this song, crown him king of glory. We, we say that even because it's not because of our works. It's not because of our righteousness. It's all because of what Jesus has done and will do. Lord, increase our faith. And give us greater delight in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear these words as we close our time together. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Amen.